You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Good to see you this morning. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. If you're here visiting with us for the first time, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time now. We've reached the 22nd chapter, the 23rd verse, and this morning we will read down to verse 33. Matthew 22, read beginning at verse 23. The Bible says this, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked Him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your grace, for Your mercy to us in Your Son. We have sung this morning of Your holiness. And not one person in this room standing before you in the condition we were in from birth, standing before you in the merits of our own performance, could ever, would ever be found accepted. You are holy and we are by nature great sinners. But you have had mercy upon us and you have done a work that is both legal and experiential. You've given to us legally the very merits of Your Son. You have imputed His righteousness to us. And in that way, we stand before You, the holy, holy, holy God, perfectly accepted in Christ. We don't deserve it. This is what You've done as a gift of Your grace. We thank You. And though we still sin, Lord, You have changed us. You have given us, You've granted to us hearts of flesh. You have made us a people who are now alive spiritually, raised from the dead in union with Your Son. You've given us new natures. You've made us new creations. And You've come to abide in us by Your Spirit and rescued us not for a day or until we fail, but Lord, for forever. And so we stand before You fully forgiven, but also new people. People who love You, desire to please You, and now have the capacity to receive Your Word. And that's how we gather today, Lord, Your forgiven people, Your church, asking now that You would minister to us through the preached Word by the work of Your Spirit in our hearts. As has already been mentioned, Lord, we are mindful there are people among us who don't know You, and we ask that the same mercy and grace that explains us would be granted so that You would save them and it would then explain them. Be our teacher, we ask. We will give you thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has just been challenged regarding His authority. In Matthew chapter 21, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. In verse 23, the Bible says, And when He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Him as He was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? By what authority do you teach what you teach? By what authority do you do something like you just did 
driving out the money changers and the sellers of animals from the temple complex. By what authority do you do this? And as we saw, he answered their challenge to his authority by exerting his authority. He asserts his authority by assessing them, and he asserts his authority by pronouncing their judgment. And he does this by means of three judgment parables. We saw the parable of the two sons, we saw the parable of the wicked tenants, and we saw the parable of the wedding feast. Each one of those parables tells the story of Israel's current spiritual condition at the time that Jesus was teaching these things. Each of those parables tells of future judgment and warns of that, but also present in each of those parables was the announcement of mercy, and primarily a mercy to be known by outsiders. The parable of the wedding feast especially emphasized this, God's mercy to the world, God's mercy to Gentiles. So by what authority do you do this? Jesus gives three parables, each one asserting His authority, judging them, announcing their current condition, announcing their future judgment, but also announcing mercy. And then Matthew tells us what follows that on the part of Christ's opponents. How will you respond to these three parables? And what you find is not humility, not fear. I mean, He's just announced your future judgment. But there's no humility, there's no fear, there's no hint of reassessment, there's no repentance. Instead, what follows are three wicked attempts to entrap Him. They go into planning mode, and not just one group of unbelieving Jews, but Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians planning to entrap the Son of God with His words, hoping to bring about His destruction. They want to rid themselves of the voice that exposes them. This is a good test for us. How do we respond when God confronts our sin? How do we respond when the Word of God exposes our sin? What you find in God's people, people who've been saved, is that the response will be humility and confession of sin, repentance from sin. But in, in the case of those who are lost and continue to be lost, what you find instead is defiance. And that is what is on display in these three entrapment scenes. You see the defiance of unbelieving Jewish spiritual, so-called spiritual leaders. So the authority of Christ is on display. Who gives you this authority? What is the source and the nature of your authority? His authority is on display in His judgments, and His authority is on display in His wisdom. Because what happens in each of these three attempts to entrap Jesus is these men are actually entrapped themselves. In each case, they are exposed. In each case, their wickedness is put on display and their foolishness is put on display. So if you ask, who is Jesus? The answer of the Scriptures is, well, just watch what He does and watch how He does it. Listen to His judgments and behold His wisdom, and you will perceive His authority. So we are now looking at the second of these entrapment scenes. The first one involved the Pharisees. Christ exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The second entrapment scene involves the Sadducees. And in this case, what is really, I mean, they're hypocrites also, but what is really on display is their arrogance. He confronts and exposes their arrogance. And this is what characterizes lost humanity. Hypocrisy and arrogance believing we're someone we're not really, and pretending we're someone we aren't really, and doing it all in a spirit of arrogant defiance. We'll look at this section this morning under four headings, verses 23 through 33. Four headings. You can write these down. We'll come to them one at a time. Number one, the test. Number two, the rebuke. Number three, the proof. And number four, the outcome. The test the rebuke, the proof, and the outcome. Notice, first of all, the test, verses 23 through 28. 
the test. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked Him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her, that is, they had all married her. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is Matthew tells us this occurred on the same day, verse 23, on that day. So if you haven't already gathered it, what we're witnessing are multiple attempts in rapid-fire fashion to do harm to Jesus, all launched on the same day. It's like the hounds of hell have been released and they are pursuing the Son of God. And both by taking note of the various groups that are attacking Him and taking note of the various approaches, you see that man in his sinful defiance toward God expresses that in a variety of ways. The Pharisees come with a political question, and the Herodians, they come with a political question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Sadducees come with a theological question. Uh, men who don't believe in the resurrection asking questions about the resurrection. We'll talk about that in a moment. But so you have political questions, you have theological questions. The political questions are tied to theology. Here is man in his sinfulness, estranged from God, at odds with God, and yet having all sorts of questions in the name of God. And it's just a good reminder for us that there are people in our world right now who have a lot of interest in politics, and they do it in the name of God, have all sorts of questions about how Christians should respond to this or that, how the church should respond to this or that. They're, they're all wrapped up in the political moment, but in the name of God. And there are other people who are full of all sorts of theological questions in the name of God. I just want you to know it is possible to have an interest in political things in the name of God, and to have an interest in theological things in the name of God, and not know God. Not know Him. So an interest in the Scriptures, but not knowing the author. An interest in all sorts of things taking place in your moment, your time in history, but not knowing Him. That's what we have before us, men who don't know God who hate the Son of God, are seeking to entrap and murder the Son of God, but they come with their questions. The source of this test, the Sadducees. On that day, some Sadducees came to Jesus. Who were the Sadducees? Surprisingly, you don't have a lot of information either in the Scriptures or outside the Scriptures about the Pharisees. What you can gather from a, an outside source like Josephus and what you can gather from the Bible really doesn't tell us how they began, where they started. What we do have, though, is information that gives us an understanding of, of their influence and their standing at the time of Jesus, and they were quite influential. One of the most influential schools of Jewish thought during the time of Christ. In fact, it might be true to say that at the time of Jesus, they held the most influential place in the formal realms of Jewish authority. One example of this is Acts chapter 5, verse 17, which says, But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Here's the council of the Jewish people, the high priest standing up, and he is joined by his associates, and they're identified as the Sadducees. So from what we know about the Sadducees, they were connected to the priestly class and they're connected to the, the aristocrats of the Jewish people. That They're associated with the rich, with the wealthy, with the influential. And so in that way, they have authority, they have influence. Now I say formal authority may have been the most influential sect when it comes to formal authority because the Pharisees were more popular with the common man. 
And so you have an influence exerted by the Pharisees that affected the most populous group of the Jews, the common people, and then you have the Sadducees who are more influential in the formal realms of Jewish authority. And these two groups battled with each other for influence. You see this, for example, in Acts chapter 23, Paul on trial before the Jewish council. He perceives in that trial an opportunity to take advantage of the divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Acts 23 verse 6 says, But knowing that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there was a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor an angel. Remember that. It's going to be important in a moment. The, Phar- the Sadducees say there is no resurrection nor an angel nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great outcry. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing because the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So there you have two groups at odds with each other, battling for influence, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees paying great attention to the traditional understandings and application of the Word of God passed down by their forefathers. So for the Pharisees, tradition matters greatly. For the Sadducees, they paid no attention to those traditions. For them, it was the Scriptures only, but they limited the Bible's authority to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That's what they said had authority. So the rest of the Old Testament, did not have, they didn't consider to be inspired. It didn't have authority. Pharisees, the whole Old Testament, but greatly influenced by the traditions passed down by the forefathers. This is how they understood the Old Testament, applied the understanding. What did Rabbi so-and-so say? What did the other rabbis say? What did this person say? What did that person say? You have all these opinions about what to do with the Word of God. The Sadducees, no attention to the, uh, to the traditions, but the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, that has authority. And as Matthew's careful to tell us in verse 23, they said... There is no resurrection. So this is the source of the test, the Sadducees. We're still thinking about the test, the source, the Sadducees, the substance of the test. What does their test consist of? Verse 24, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. The substance of the test has to do with leveret marriage. Leveret comes from a Latin word that means a husband's brother. So a woman married to a man, the man dies, they have no offspring. She then marries this man's brother, leveret marriage. But really what is in their target is not so much the teaching concerning the marriage as a question about the resurrection, that they can use this teaching to serve for their purposes hoping to, from their vantage point, show how absurd a belief in the resurrection is. In other words, you might ask, why do men who don't believe in the resurrection ask a question about leveret marriage, joining their question to the subject of resurrection? You see it in verse 25. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh and last of all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. Why do men who don't believe in the resurrection ask a question about the resurrection? Because this is not an honest question. This is a gotcha question. This is stump the rabbi. That's what's going on here. Let's ask him a question about the law of God that if you believe in a resurrection, just won't make any sense at all. Just not even possible, you see. This is why I say what we're dealing with here is arrogance. They are smug. They are proud. They are self-assured. This is probably a well-rehearsed question. 
This is something that Sadducees, no doubt, would sit around and talk about as they would you know, make fun of people who believe in the resurrection. This was a question probably used at times on Pharisees and people who believe in the resurrection. You know, we hear those same types of questions. Could God create a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it? Where did Adam get his belly button? You know, all those sorts of things that people dream up that they think, right? They think, man, these are great questions. <laughs> this is such deep stuff. I mean, who could ever answer that? Well, that's the sort of thing going on here. The regulations are talking about Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Listen to the law of God on leveret marriage. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel." So when you look at the law of God and you ask, why did God give the, this teaching? What's the reason for the legislation? It doesn't really state it, but I think you can logically deduce it. One, it cared for a widowed wife. This wife is now taken by the brother, so she's cared for. It honors the memory of the deceased brother. The firstborn assumes the dead brother's name which honors the memory of the deceased brother, that demonstrates family love and it protected family inheritances. So you imagine an inheritance given to the oldest, for example, and then he dies and then his brother takes this woman to be his wife. The inheritance is protected. But their concern isn't really about the legislation. They have a hypothetical for Jesus. Seven brothers end up following that law so they all have the same wife, and due to each one dying without offspring, without a child, finally she dies childless. So in the resurrection, to whom will she belong? All seven had her as a wife. Whose wife will she be? They must have thought to themselves, you know what, if you believe in the resurrection, we just stumped you. You don't have an answer for this. This is the test. Secondly, I want you to notice the rebuke. The rebuke, verse 29 and verse 30. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I mean with absolute ease. Jesus just swats away their stump the rabbi question. Had to be humbling to the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. Had to be humbling. Had to be somewhat infuriating, embarrassing, jealousy producing when these, in their own estimation, great minds of Israel conceive of these tests for Jesus by which they're going to entrap Him and they can't entrap Him. He just, he just handles them with ease. How, how does Jesus answer them? First of all, He gives them a conclusion. I love this. He just says, you're wrong. You're mistaken. Planao is the word. And in that word is the idea of wandering aimlessly, going astray, Straying from the truth. You're not just wrong, you're lost. You're wandering around in the realm of deception. You don't understand the truth here. I love that because it's so definitive, isn't it? Is there right and wrong anymore? I mean, is it okay just to say that's wrong? How often do we meet with men even in the name of ministry who waffle around on every question that's posed as if God hasn't given us any clear, definitive answers. Well, some people see it that way and others see it that way. And I know there are arguments for this, but there are also arguments for that. Is there an answer? 
Is there a right? Is there a wrong? Jesus is clear. You are wrong. But then he goes on to do more than that. He doesn't just announce his conclusion. He explains it. He assesses them again. He sums up who they really are. Notice he says this, you are mistaken. Why are you mistaken? Because you don't understand the Scriptures. Not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. You are ignorant in two ways. You don't know the Scriptures. Now, that would have been especially stinging to them. You've got to remember, we've talked about this, Jesus is non-credentialed. And these men belong to one of the sects among the Jewish people that are thought of as leadership. I mean, these are the guys that have been affirmed. These are the guys that have sat at the feet of teachers, rabbis. They have been affirmed. And here's Jesus, this non-credentialed teacher, who tells them, you don't know the Bible. You don't know the Scriptures. And he's about to demonstrate that they don't know their Bible. And he's going to do it from the very section of the Old Testament that they would have affirmed. So he's gonna, he says, I'm going to show you basically in your own playing field, the part of the Bible that you acknowledge to be the Word of God. From there, I'm going to demonstrate you don't know what you're talking about. From Moses, I'm going to show you that you don't know what you're reading. But he says something else. Not only are they ignorant of the Scriptures, they're ignorant of the power of God. Not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. What does he mean by that? He means that their conception of what the resurrection would be like is limited by what they've already known. So they think if someone believes in the resurrection, here's the kind of world it will be like, but their view of what it's going to be like is limited to what they've already experienced. They are ignorant of the kind of world that God has in store, that God has destined and planned, that will involve true humanity but resurrected humanity. Truly human, but fit for an everlasting existence. Not hard for us to understand that because lost humanity struggles with this, and sometimes even saved humanity struggles with this to our own day. Listen to lost people who believe in a heaven, who believe in God. Listen to them talk about what they think their departed loved ones are now experiencing. And what they always describe is something in heaven that is just a step up from what we've known here on earth. Old Bob is up there playing the most glorious 18 holes of golf he's ever known. I bet he's up there cheering his Texas Rangers right now. Texas Ranger reference. Yes, I had to get that in. As if the only thing God has in store for us is just a slightly more glorious version of what we know right now. When in fact, if you listen to the Word of God and what it says about our everlasting future, it's going to be a brand new heavens and earth with a new physical nature that matches the work that God has done in your soul. It's going to be an everlasting day one that never comes to an end, in which righteousness dwells. No sin. None of the weakness that we know that has been produced as a result of the fall, produced by sin. All of it gone. Leon Morris comments, he says, the Sadducees are basing their line of reasoning on Scripture, but they've not taken up a genuinely scriptural position. Therefore, they are in error. I just want to stop there and say, Again, this is what people do. They take a portion of the, of the Bible, some reading of the Bible, but they've totally misconstrued what the Bible teaches on some of these subjects. This is what the Sadducees had done. He said they did not really know the Scriptures. It's one thing to be able to quote passages that one thinks supports one's preconceived position, and quite another to understand and follow the teaching of Scripture, to understand and to yield oneself to what Scripture says is quite different from quoting passages in the way the Sadducees were doing. And just as they do not really understand Scripture, so they do not know the power of God. 
The question of the resurrection from the dead is not one to be solved by citing a convenient passage from somewhere in the Bible. It demands that we recognize God's power to do what He wills. What has God willed? What has He revealed? And then do you know He has the power to do that? He has the power to do that. So, His conclusion, you're wrong. His assessment, you are ignorant in two ways. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. But then He does something wonderful. He actually exerts His authority in another way because He gives new revelation. He tells them something about the resurrection that you don't find in the Old Testament. You find it in the mouth of Christ. He says in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When the resurrection comes, there won't be any need for marriage anymore. You're asking, to whom will she be married? The answer is, none of them. Because in the resurrection there is no marriage, nor giving away in marriage. And in that way, we will be like the angels, in that way. We will not be angels, but in that way we will have an existence like the angels. Isn't this interesting? Jesus doesn't just talk about resurrection and reveal truth about the resurrection to men who didn't believe in the resurrection. What else do the Sadducees not believe in? Angels. Now how they got that out of the first five books of the Old Testament, I have no clue. Because angels are spoken of in the Pentateuch. But somehow they had twisted and turned the Scriptures in a way that they didn't believe in angels. They were the anti-supernaturalists of their day. Didn't believe in spirits, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus says, just like you're wrong about the resurrection, you're also wrong about angels. And in the resurrection, in that way, in the, in the matter of marriage, we're going to be like the angel. Believer, I'm talking to you now. Do you struggle understanding the power of God? Because one of, the, one of the sweet blessings of the Christian life are Christian marriages. And when you've been blessed to have that sweetness, when you are married to a fellow believer, and there is a love that is lifelong in its loyalty, and outside of Christ Himself, perhaps the sweetest blessing you know in your Christian life on this side of heaven and then you envision eternity without that marriage. Now notice I didn't say without a relationship to the person you're married to because we're all going to know each other. You're not going to have your, a memory wipe. No, we're going to know each other and be related to each other as brethren, redeemed people, living forever in the presence of our Savior. But there will no longer be a need for marriage. Marriage belongs to this age. And it's lifelong in nature, but after our lives are over, it is no more. Here's what I ask you. Does heaven seem sweet to you? Does a resurrected state seem sweet to you without your marriage? And if you can admit and say, Pastor, I'm being honest, there's a little sadness there. Well, then guess what you're really struggling with? You're struggling with the power of God, aren't you? Will the Lord... Grant His people everlasting joy in the resurrection. Will God have something in store for us then that far surpasses, it's above all we could ever ask or think, far surpasses what we know right now in this age, in a world, living in a world under a curse? Isn't it going to be unimaginably greater than that? What's the answer? So if we struggle to get our minds and hearts around that, what are we really struggling with? Our belief in the power of God to accomplish what He says He's going to accomplish. Not only for His great name's sake, but for our sake. I mean, loving us, caring for us. Well, these men didn't just struggle. They denied it. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. So we see the test. We see the rebuke. Third, notice the proof that Jesus offers. Verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, let's go back to your original question. I've answered the marriage question. 
So let's get to the heart of your marriage question, the resurrection. Regarding the resurrection of the dead, I love this, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Haven't you read that? Haven't you read that? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does Jesus do? He takes them to Moses. You'll acknowledge this. You'll say this is the Word of God. Fine. Have you heard what was said there in Exodus chapter 3? This was our scripture reading this morning. Butch read it, verses 1 and following. What our Lord does here is He makes His argument from a verb tense. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Before I talk about that, just a few things I want to point out. First of all, the Scriptures address your ignorance. This is what Jesus is saying. The Bible addresses your ignorance. As for the resurrection of the dead, let's go to the Bible. You've asked a question. You know the Bible has the answer. It's amazing to me how many people want to argue that the Bible doesn't have an answer to a particular question in their mind, and they've never even read the Bible. Some of what people say the Bible doesn't answer, the Bible gives straightforward, clear answers to their questions. They just don't know the Scriptures. And he tells them that the Bible is the Word of God. He takes what they can read, and he says in verse 31, it was spoken to you by God. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What you can read came out of the mouth of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And that Word makes you personally responsible. It's a dangerous thing to know the Word of God. As Bush mentioned this morning, to much is given, much is required. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Word of God and you reject it, the greater your judgment. But don't ever imagine that just because you don't know the Bible, you will escape its judgments. The very fact that it exists and that you have access to it will increase your judgment if you reject its teachings. To say something about God or something about eternity or something about mankind, something about salvation, just because you don't know what you're talking about will not excuse you from the judgment that has been written down by God through men. Because notice he says in verse 31, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Your ignorance is not because you haven't been personally addressed. God has already told you the answer for what you're asking about. Haven't you read it? So that if you read the Scriptures rightly, it yields accurate trustworthy conclusions because Christ is going, he could have answered this directly, but he answers it with scripture. Because if you read the scriptures rightly, you come away with accurate, trustworthy conclusions. So I'm asking you, have you read this? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Where does he find this? Exodus chapter 3. Verse 1, listen to it again. You heard it this morning already, but listen again. Now, I tell you what, why don't you turn there? I want you to see this with your eyes. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Keep your Bible marker in Matthew 22. We're coming back. Look at Exodus chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, I want you to underline that. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that, 
he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Verse 4, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is a theophany. This is a physical manifestation of the presence of God. Moses is afraid to look. When this appearance was granted to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead. Long ago had died. And yet when God speaks of them, He speaks in the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would be true if they had gone out of existence, which is what the Sadducees believe. But He says, I am now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Based on that verb tense, Jesus makes His point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is their God, gentlemen, even as we speak. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. A couple of things I want you to note. Look back at Matthew 22. A couple of things I want you to note. The very one who is now giving them answers about the resurrection and about angels was present in that burning bush. Now, just from the standpoint of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who was He, who is He? The eternal Son of God come to earth through a virgin birth. He has, in His divine nature, has always existed before the world ever was. From all eternity, one true and living God existing in three persons. The Son of God is eternal. So just by virtue of His divine nature, we know He was present at the burning bush because God, one aspect of God's nature is He's omnipresent. Jesus was there. But I believe that that Old Testament theophany, that Old Testament manifestation of God in that burning bush was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the Word of God, the Messenger of God. So Jesus is teaching them about a passage in which He was present. It's interesting when you study the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, you find that he is spoken of as distinct from Yahweh, yet identified with Yahweh, referred to as God, called. And then when you trace his appearances, there will be a display of God's attributes and God's authority. He speaks as God. Who is this one who is distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father? It is the Son of God, which is why I believe in this case you have a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And then the one who is teaching them about the resurrection is soon to be raised from the dead himself so that he is the resurrection and the life. You're denying the resurrection, speaking to the resurrection and the life. You're going to put his body in a tomb and you're going to seal it. But three days later, his body is not going to be there. He will be raised from the dead bodily. And as the first fruits of our resurrection, He is the demonstration, the proof, and the first taste of what you and I are going to experience when one day we're called forth from our graves. You die, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But if you read the Genesis account, what you discover is God planned from all eternity for man to have an existence that is both material and immaterial. We are meant to have bodies. That's how God first formed Adam and Eve. And that is His plan for humanity for the rest of eternity. So that this temporary state due to sin, which is death, will one day be conquered and the grave will be conquered. And the plan of God for all of His people, for the wicked and the righteous, the wicked raised to, through resurrection to eternal damnation, but you and I raised through resurrection to eternal bliss. This is our future. And they're talking to the one who is that resurrection. John eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She believed in the resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And listen, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what he says to her. Do you believe this? And she does believe him. And praise be to God and his grace, we believe him. Don't we, church? We believe him. So that when you close your eyes in death, you are very much alive. And you're in the presence of God. He wasn't your God. He is your God. In other words, he, it's not, I was your God back then. I'm your God now. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The conclusion is God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is His proof. Straight from the law of God that they would have acknowledged, straight from the Pentateuch, straight from the book of Exodus. What is the outcome? Verse 33, And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together once more. You ask about His authority, watch what He does, watch how He does it. The authority of Christ on display, not just in His judgments, but in His wisdom. They cannot trap Him. Every attempt to trap Him entraps themselves as He exposes them with knowledge they claimed to have but didn't with the truth of the Scriptures. Let me finish this morning by mentioning four things in the way of application. First of all, as we have seen, you can know the Scriptures and not know them. Beware of this. You can know the Scriptures and not know them. Just because you hear people say sometimes, but the man preaches from the Bible. Do you understand you can have preaching from the Bible that distorts the Bible? Preaching from the Bible that isn't true to the Bible. You can know the Scriptures but not know them. These men knew the Pentateuch, but they had missed the truth that Christ just presented to them. You are ignorant of the Scriptures, he says. Second, you can talk about God and be a stranger to His truth and to His power. Everyone in this room, you're here because you talk about God. But do you know the truth? You're here with a Bible open. We do this every week. You know the Scriptures, but do you know them? And do you know God truly? Do you know Him in fellowship? Do you know Him in relationship? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you experienced the new birth? Are you the product of regeneration? Is there love for God, an understanding of the Lord, a desire for the Lord that was not present until Jesus saved you? Have you met with the power of God in salvation? You can be someone who knows the Bible but not know it. You can be someone who talks about God and yet be a stranger to the truth and to His power. The Bible warns us about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. So a form of religion, you're religious, but does your life demonstrate the power of God? Have you been transformed by the God who really is, who really exists, who really does save human beings? Have you met the Savior who really did come and live and die and was raised and is able to save forever anyone who looks to Him by faith? Do you know Him? Are you really indwelt by the Spirit of God? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Because no one who, who doesn't have the Spirit has Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. It's possible to talk about God be a stranger to the truth and to His power. Third, you can consider yourself wise even when you're acting like a fool. Here are these men, when they voiced that question, you can be sure there was a smile on their face and their chest was puffed out. Isn't this a really good question? Won't this get him? And they leave with their lips zipped. They were acting like fools they were fools even when they thought they were wise. Maybe I'm talking to someone in this room today that you have all your answers to your parents' Christianity or your grandparents' Christianity or the buddy who brought you here this morning. You've been someone who has been hard in your sin and you think yourself to be so smart. 
Can I tell you something? Loving you, my friend. Listen, you are a breath. That's all you are. You're dust. You're a breath. And before you can blink your eyes, the day will come when you will no longer have an existence on this side of eternity. Your life on this side of eternity will be over truly. It could be today. And if you perish in your arrogance toward God and His Word, you will have died indeed. You will experience the second death and perish forever. And one day, if that's you, what eternity will reveal is that there was a day you sat in a church like this one, and the offer, the free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ was set before you. All you had to do was humble yourself and admit yourself to be lost and look to the only Savior God has given to save people like us, Jesus. You could have looked and believed and been saved, but you refused because you thought yourself to be so smart, even when you were a fool. I exhort you with all my heart, don't be a fool. Turn to Christ and live. And the church would say, turn to Christ and live. Fourth thing, last thing, Christ is the discovery of truth, wisdom, and in Him, you meet with the power of God. You're ignorant of the truth, Jesus says. You're ignorant of the power of God. Well, where do I find the truth? Where do I find the power of God? The answer is Jesus. In Him is all wisdom, all the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, by me. Come to Jesus and you'll meet with truth. Come to Jesus and you'll meet with wisdom. Come to Jesus and you'll meet with the power of Almighty God to save a sinner like you. And everyone sitting in this room who knows Jesus knows that these things are true. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me and you'll never die. Do you believe that? And every child of God says, yes, Lord, and amen. We believe. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for another glorious presentation of your Son on the pages of your Word. And I pray that we, your church, would delight in our Savior, rejoice in your grace to us in Him, boast in Christ alone. We have no other boast. There's nothing else to be proud of. Outside of Jesus, there is no good. But in Him, we know You, the true and living God. And this is our boast, that we know God in and through His Son. We pray for anyone in this room who can't say that yet. May they even now, even as near to them as their mouth and in their heart, would they cry out to Jesus with a silent prayer, with a silent cry, and ask Your Son to save them. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.